coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Many are saying NASI should step away from the microphone. Do we need a vaccine passport once we're done? And what happens when the Line 5 pipeline shuts down? It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. My sister got her wisdom teeth out today. That'll keep her quiet for a while. You know you're in a pandemic when the dentist is an event. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Hang on, I'm tangled up here. Too many cords here. I'm tangled up. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes uh, as uh, we go down the downside or down the downs, uh, down the far end of week number 59. All right. We've been talking about uh, the miscommunication between Health Canada and NASI. It seems Health Canada says something and then NASI, in a sense, uh, contradicts it. I've got just the information on AstraZeneca alone and the changing in the messaging. Uh, February 26th, uh, AstraZeneca approved by Health Canada, 18 plus. March 1st, NASI says no one over 65 uh, should be using this. Uh, March 16th, NASI uh, now says it's good for 65 plus. By March 29th, NASI says no to under 55. Uh, April 18th, uh, Patty Haidu, the uh, uh, federal health minister, then says it's free for everyone to use 18 plus. And then, of course, uh, earlier on this week from Dr. Shelley Deeks of NASI, we heard this. So what uh, what we're saying is that and what we've said all along is that the mRNA vaccines are the preferred vaccine. Um, and yet. Um, given that given the epidemiology, um, the viral vector vaccines are very effective vaccines, but there is a, a safety signal, a safety risk. And the issue with the safety signal is that although it's, it's very rare, um, it is very serious. And so individuals need to um, have an informed choice to be vaccinated with the first vaccine that's available or to wait for an mRNA vaccine. They need to be aware that those are the, the options available to them. Now, oddly enough, we had on Justin Bates, who's the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, just after this announcement, and here's what he had to say. Well, I'm going to make a proposal, and that is no more NASI press conferences. <laughs> I think the, the two words, right? I mean, I think the two words that come to, to my mind uh, that describe this is disappointed, and irresponsible. All right, let's bring in Susan Delacorte, national columnist with the Toronto Star. The headline is, Vaccine Confusion Hurts Our Pandemic Efforts. Are politicians making it worse? Susan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, Same to you. Thank you. Uh, You know, it seems that this was uh, big news a day or so ago, and now no one seems to care that uh, vaccine is now being allowed for uh, kids 12 plus for Pfizer. I'm not sure of the coincidence of that information coming out uh, exactly the day after the whole nasty thing. It also seems odd. We seem to be the first to do this when we have supply issues and even uh, miscommunication here. Your thoughts on on the confusion surrounding all of this? 
Well, I actually think that that um, I, I would agree with um, Mr. Bates that uh, probably it's not a good idea to have these press conferences when the information is sort of rolling along. I, I actually do think that that was one of the biggest stumbles in the whole vaccine rollout this week because we have 1.7 million Canadians. Uh, we probably know some of them, I certainly do, who anxiously tried to get an AstraZeneca shot only to be told this Monday that, you know, maybe you should have waited and shopped around for a better one. Uh, we, The entire thing in this vaccine rollout has been get the first available shot. And with one press conference that uh, is blown out of the water and you're hearing it, I hear it. I'm sure you're hearing it on your show too. People are saying, wait a minute, did I get a substandard vaccine? Am I going to get sick? Why didn't somebody tell me I could have waited for Pfizer or Moderna uh, and so on? So um, I, I don't blame the politicians for this, despite what the headline says. I think that uh, that they've they've been handed this ongoing mess. And um, I, the point I was writing today is that it's unfortunate that we aren't where we were last year when people were sort of hanging on words of mm. politicians to to get some reassurance. And that that faith in politicians has faded uh, pretty quickly over the last few months. Uh, we've gradually worked our way up to this, Susan. This is like the fourth time, the fourth time that NASI has contradicted what Health Canada or the other guidelines are saying. Um, I've got a couple of questions here. Uh, are they aware of the confusion they are they are creating? And we certainly know there's value here. I mean, it's best to be looking at this from various lenses and get differing, differing opinions and such. I get all of that. But when it comes to messaging, uh, it seems they're more focused on their mandate than they are on the chaos that they are creating outside the office. Well, I, I think we're, we're seeing sort of the don't try this at home lesson in communication. Yeah. There is a reason that it is very difficult and why politicians often say nothing. It drives us crazy. But they've learned that if you if you say the truth as you know it at the time, you tend to get into trouble. A friend of mine actually put up a great uh post on Facebook. I don't know where it came from, but it's uh, it says science is not the truth. Science is finding the truth. When science changes its opinion, it didn't lie to you. It learned more. So mm-hmm. we're getting science in real time. Let's just be charitable to Nancy. They, they are giving us the science in real time. And it's sort of this free associating, uh, here's where my head's at right now, uh, one of the members went on TV later in the day on Monday and said she wouldn't tell her sister to get AstraZeneca, which was also yeah. not very helpful. So I think, you know, I, I really, uh, I, I think we in the media overuse the whole word. We, we dwell too much on communication as the only skill in politics. But I think we are seeing what happens when you are not really careful about what you are saying to the public. And uh, as you say, this is not the first time it happened, but I, from where I stand, where I sit here at home, like everybody else, um, it seems to have been the most damaging, just because we're at a crucial stage right now. And it's not simply a matter of individual preference. We need a lot of people to get vaccinated really quickly. And anything that stands in the way of that is really 
not just a, a communications mess. It is a public health mess. Uh, why are we even having NASI speak at this point? I mean, again, I understand of gathering all the information and coming at it from different angles and such, but but clearly uh, they're not putting the thought into the messaging. Why are they even at the microphone at this point? Uh, you'd have to ask them that and, and what the idea is. I think, you know, there is a, a school of thought in crisis communications that the more information, the better, and that and, and most governments have been working that way, although, as I've written in the piece today, we've really seen that scaled back from a year ago. But I think the idea still is the public is not only wants, but needs and is entitled to as much information as they can get. So NASI is assuming that people are sifting through the nuance and the, the um, you know, the, 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 the various complicated risk calculations that they're making. They're not. They're, people yeah. are tired. They're frustrated. Uh, they, they've got a lot of hopes pinned on, on vaccines to get them back to normal. So, and, and this was, you know, uh, this was just a hope deflating press conference the other day. Um, will this happen again? Has the prime minister or will anybody address them on this? Is anybody trying to fix this? Or are we just waiting for it to happen again? I didn't get much reassurance from the way the health minister answered the questions. Michelle Rempel Garner, who can be a little edgy mm-hmm. in the Commons, was asked a very straight question on Monday: "Is what are Canadians supposed to believe now?" And uh, the health minister was not helpful w- with her answers. I'm hoping that in the days subsequent, she's had a little talk with everybody about what's good and what's bad uh, by way of um, of communicating in this crisis. And I say, we journalists do way too much talking about communication. I think mm-hmm. it's because it's our business. But I, I, I can't stress enough that this is not just a communications problem. This is a public health problem if we have people who are nervous about the vaccines they're taking. And, and you know, I, I understand that it is changing and, the, and, you know, it's a very, very fluid situation. And I think after a year or so into this, Canadians realize that. Um, so, again, there's nothing new that NASI brought out here. They, they It's just the same sort of basic stuff regurgitated and then reintroduced. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not, you know, a lot of people, I think, are saying, well, you know, they got to be transparent parent, and we need to know all the information. I don't think that's the issue here. The issue is making sure your message is as consistent as other government and health agencies. And at the end of the day, are you helping or are you hurting uh, yep. the cause? I, so, you know, again, I think a lot of who are defending NASA are saying, well, we got to know all the information. That's not the question here. I, I think the, the last point there is very uh, important and relevant. Are you helping or are you hurting? It is true, again, we, I, I, I like to joke about journalists that if, uh, if, if we applied journalism principles to personal relationships, nobody would ever get married because yeah. we would say, hey, you didn't feel like you wanted to marry me when you first met me. <laughs> Consistency is sometimes an overused value as well. But I think coherence is a good one and confidence. I think that's if we're talking about C words. Confidence is the one that um, that people need at the moment too, and uh, 
they, you know, I, I'm not a doctor, but I've, I've heard that one of their rules is first do no harm. That wouldn't be a bad idea for the doctors at Massey. What was the first reaction in, at, at government, within the government, on this news? I don't know. Uh, I only, I, I was uh, like everybody, I'm watching all of this from my television. I'm not mm-hmm. in the House of Commons. So I was watching the press conference from NASI was still going on as question period started in the Commons. Mm-hmm. So we were sort of seeing things in real time. And my impression was that the government was not aware of the disaster that was unfolding at the, wow. at the press conference because they were sitting in the House of Commons. You know, they, um, I, I think it was only sort of later in the day. That's what it looked like. It, it didn't look like the health minister knew what exactly what had happened at the press conference, which, you know, you can't be everywhere. No, not when it's unraveling like that. Uh, how does or how should the prime minister address this? Well, uh, you saw him out the next day, and I think I think he reasonably did a good job of saying, I think one of the more powerful things is that um, the prime minister himself and the premier of Ontario, and I believe some other premiers too, um, have received AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's an... While people don't listen to their politicians, tell them what to do, sometimes seeing them do that is a good idea. So I think the prime minister did use the occasion on Tuesday to say, look, I got the vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, and I was glad to get it and I would do it again. And I think more of that from sort of opinion leaders is probably a good idea. I don't know about discipline. Um, I, I don't know that that's the right answer for this, but I think some coherence, I think, from government on all of this would be a good idea. Do you think he's having conversations with NASI? From what we understand, they haven't. He hasn't approached them on this. Are there conversations going on behind the scenes that say, "Look, people, we got to get on the same page here"? Are those conversations happening? I think that you know we have to be careful. Advisory committees don't take their instructions from the politicians, and we don't really want them to mm-hmm. because we don't want politics to get all muddled up in that. And uh, Trudeau is a kind of a hands-off prime minister when it comes to those sort of things. So I'm not sure anybody's being reined in, but I think there may be more people inside government, inside the prime minister's office, who are watching every time Nancy utters a word or a phrase now. But I don't think I don't think they are part of the communications machine, as we saw. Uh, do you think there's conversations going on within Nancy about this? I hope so. I would hope so. Uh, I, I I really do hope they are are conscious of the fact that uh, that when they are talking, they are giving advice to Canadians whether they know it or not, and they should be pretty clear on what they're doing. So I, I would imagine. I don't. I have not been talking to anybody there, but I would imagine they've done some soul searching this week about whether that was a particularly productive use of their time on Monday. 
May seems to be a turning point as more and more vaccines are coming into the country. We're seeing more and more provinces ramp up uh, vaccination efforts. Uh, up until this week, uh, most of the uh, the vaccine clinics across this area were operating at, at about 50% capacity. Hopefully that's changing and things are ramping up as more and more uh, vaccines come into uh, provinces and such and, and the, the age groups and cohorts get lowered. Uh, it still seems, though, that the, the the provinces are taking the brunt of uh, the public criticism as opposed to the prime minister. Would that be accurate? Yeah, you're probably more in touch with uh, sort of what's happening in your area. But I think, you know, Canadians don't know. Uh, um, they have better things to do than sort of sift through Section 91 and 92 of the Constitution and who does what. But. I think people are reasonably understanding of the fact that Ottawa bought the vaccines, but the provinces roll them out. And so uh, the fact that, you know, there's supply problems and there's rolling out problems. And I don't actually think I, I've heard plenty of blame going around, but I think, I think the prime minister was taking most of the blame in the first three months of the year when it was obvious there were, supply problems, but the rollout problems, the problems that people are having getting appointments or or the prioritization, but you know, whether they're going to hotspots or to, to the right places, that's at the province's feet. So I think I think we've seen the blame kind of shifting, but I also think this is a very mercurial sort of um, feeling in the air right now and as soon as people are all fully vaccinated i think i think a lot of that is going to dissipate when when we get back to normal whenever the heck that is as you mentioned in your piece at the beginning of all of this uh we heard from our leaders uh every day we were uh, canadians were loving how they saw different levels of government different political stripes all seemingly working together and now it seems the gloves are off that's true Yep, that's true. And uh, there's a really interesting unit inside the federal government called the Behavioral Science Unit. Uh, and they've been doing really interesting research. It's all available online. You can go look at it. And Canada's been in a massive behavioral science experiment for a year and a bit now. And this unit inside government is tracking it. And one of the big things they're finding is that trust in, in government sources of information has been on a, a steady decline, uh, especially since vaccines entered the picture. I have a theory about that, actually. I think um, 2020, pande- the pandemic was all about what citizens were giving to the effort, and 2021 is all about what citizens have to get. We, mm. were, we, we had to give in, in public health measures, and we did feel like we were all in it together. 2021 is that mad dash where where all of a sudden Canadians are ranked and, and scored and sorted. And it's all about what you get from government rather than what you give to your country. And I think um, nobody's best side is shown when we're all only focused on what we're getting.
That's my hallmark lesson for the day. Do you think this after, you know, many have said, and we've talked about this many times on the show, that the life that comes out the other end of this will not be like life going in. Far too much time has passed uh, as a result of, of, of the pandemic. Uh, will we, and obviously we live in a very divisive world, extreme left, extreme right, the center seems to have disappeared. Will this unite us at the end of all of this, or will we just be as divided as we were before COVID-19? Oh, I hope that uh, we've learned something from this. I think the best times we've had in this pandemic are when we stop fighting. And I, governments, I mean that by people. Uh, I think, I, I actually think we're seeing in the United States what happens when a divisive politician leaves yeah. the stage and things start to happen. Look at the difference in the United States between a polarizing president and a uniting president and the, 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 the failure in 2020 and the success in 2021. I think if, if we're smart, we'll be watching that lesson. I, I do worry that politics has snapped back to normal before society has. It's, uh, you can tune in in an hour and watch how nasty things are in the House of Commons and think um, that some days it, it looks in there like the pandemic has never happened. Do we have a prime minister that's uniting or divisive? Hmm. Um, I don't know what I would say about that. I think he is, he, he prompts, maybe not intentionally, a very um, polarized views on him. People either love him or hate him. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I don't know that you could say that anybody sets out to do that intentionally. I think, I think, Identity politics, so much of it has it's played out over the last five or so years has really got people excited. But I don't, I, w- I wouldn't say any of the politicians in Ottawa are covering themselves in glory at the moment. Um, it's, uh, it's, as I said, just tune into question period in an hour if you can stand it and see how, you know, politics has almost there have been days in the past couple of weeks where COVID was not even mentioned. Yeah. And that is not the case in Canadian households. Good point. Uh, Susan, I'll get that. Susan Delacorte <laughs> is with us now. <laughs> Sorry about that. At least it's not a dog barking, but that might happen <laughs> soon. Uh, Susan Delacorte with us, national columnist with the Toronto Star. Vaccine confusion, uh, vaccine confusion hurts our pandemic efforts. Susan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. You too. Here's today's daily commentary. It is funny how in the last few years, Canadians seem to think we are somehow better than the United States. And I guess with a past divisive president, that view is easy pickings for us perfect Canadians. However, while Canada is stuck in the middle of the pack of the world trying to get its citizens fully vaccinated in a timely manner, the good old United States of America has blasted by Canada as if we are standing still. Because we are largely because we think we live in a country where no one gets left behind. But no, Canada has actually turned into a country where no one gets ahead. At least when America gets into a problem, they have the ingenuity to get out of it while we stand there with our hand out. The U.S. are not debating who gets the vaccine first. They are not waiting four months for the second dose. They are not debating which vaccine is better than the other because they always produce the best. But we in Canada settle for less than the best. We pretend we don't want to be the best. We do. We just have lost the desire to be more than just a pretty face and talk. 
instead settling for the fashionable over useful and productive. It's time for Canadians to look in the mirror and ask themselves if they are happy with what we have become, dependent on others. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, with vaccines ramping up in the month of May, as we're seeing, and hopefully if, uh, if supply continues the way it is, we've certainly seen uh, uh, the age cohorts moving down, 18-plus in hot spots. Health Canada approves uh, Pfizer for those 12-plus, although, you know, it's going to be a while before we get to them as well. Uh, but anyway, uh, clearly more vaccine is arriving. And with that, many people are asking, well, open the doors. Let's go. Come on. Uh, when are are we going to start seeing what we're seeing in the United States and with uh, what we're seeing in the UK? And we're still sitting around 35% of Canadians with their first shot. And the places like the UK and the US are, are all, all over 50% of their first shot. And, and many of, the, of them have the second shot as well, especially in the United States where, uh, you know, they're administering, administering both Pfizer uh, and Moderna and have been doing that continuously. Uh, they are awash in vaccine. Uh, right now. So what does that mean for uh, travel? What does that mean for sporting events? What does that mean for the hospitality industry, which has obviously uh, been under the gun? Many have chatted about and thrown out the idea of vaccine proof, vaccine passports. Uh, it seems governments have a various uh, opinion on this. And uh, as opposed to come up with one sort of system, it appears that most are just uh, leaving it up to the company or the organization or what have you uh, to address all of that. Let's bring in Dr. Marion Joppa, professor with the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management, University of Guelph, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you very much. So lots of people are asking uh, when they're going to be allowed to go out and uh, visit the areas that is obviously your area of expertise, which is management, hospitality, food, and all of that. Man, I, I can't wait for all of that. Uh, what do we need to get out? Are we going to need some sort of passport system? Well, the the notion of having some kind of proof that you are fully vaccinated um, is certainly gaining a lot of traction because putting the onus on on businesses is actually not very fair uh, because they're they're not there to police things. Uh, you know, take the airlines and and the troubles that they're having, and you see it, you know, constantly coming out of the states in particular, with people refusing to wear masks on the airplane. And what in the world is that, uh, you know, uh, air, air flight attendant supposed to do with with people? They've turned flights around because people got mm-hmm. unruly. I mean, it's just not their job, right? And and so having something that clearly tells them this person is fully vaccinated, and that's the key, fully vaccinated, um, you know, and, and then they can fly and... and um, they don't have to police quite so much is going to be really critical. How difficult do you think this is going to be? And, you know, I'm glad that you uh, emphasize fully vaccinated. This means getting two shots if that's required. We're hearing in the United States that they've got so much vaccine now that it's not an issue of getting it into arms. It's finding an arm that wants it. They're dealing once we have lots of supply, then you start to see uh, vaccine hesitancy. How do you think that's going to come to play in all of this? Because I'm sure there's people who want to participate in, in various forms of your industry that are still hesitant about this 
Yes, and and I mean, you take a look at a country like Israel, who's really been a leader in this whole um, process, and they have their green pass. And with the green pass, you can do everything and anything from going to sports events and theater and and uh, you know shopping in malls and and of course participating in all of the uh, um, recreational activities that are part of tourism. Um, without that, uh, you, no, sorry, <laughs> you're not allowed. So they're being very strict. And yes, I know that there's going to be a lot of outcry to sort of say, well, that's discriminatory. But you know what? People have a choice. And obviously people that cannot uh, receive the vaccine for health reasons uh, might need some sort of dispensation. But if it is your choice, then you know what? It's your choice. Uh, what do you know about this pass in Israel? How does it work? How effective has it been? Well, it's been it's been very effective because people literally uh, have returned to their normal lives if they have the green pass. The green pass means they've had uh, both shots of of the vaccine, so they're fully vaccinated. And and yes, life is is back to normal for them. But for anyone who, for whatever reasons, chose not to. Uh, get the vaccine, they can't participate in those activities. And in some businesses, they're actually saying the staff needs to be vaccinated. And if you, again, choose not to be vaccinated, well, then you can't work in that industry. What about medical reasons for not getting vaccinated? Is that valid? Uh, I I believe so. I I can't swear to it, but I believe so, because that would be um, a a normal thing to do now. You would have to then uh, protect yourself uh, much more stringently because you're at risk as well. Um, But, um, you know, for for most people, for the vast majority of people, uh, it, it is strictly a matter of choice whether they want the vaccine or not. Why would governments be apprehensive to do this? Because we even know initially uh, Canada was not really, you know, keen to jump on this and, and leaving it to others, whether it's an event organizer, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's an airline uh, to make those choices. But as you pointed out, I mean, that's that's pretty difficult for them to do. That's asking them to to, to sort of be uh, the police. Why wouldn't governments want to do this simply because it makes it more consistent? Absolutely, it makes it more consistent. Um, but very often governments hate to do it because uh, it's considered infringement on personal rights, on individual rights. Now, mind you, we've done it for all sorts of other things. You're not allowed to smoke in, in uh, you know, restaurants and, and public places and within nine feet of, of doors and all of those things. So we've done that. Um, we've, uh, you know, imposed uh, seatbelts in cars. You could all say all of that infringes uh, individual rights, but we have deemed that collective rights are more important than individual rights in those instances. And that's what we need to get to with this. Because so, part of wearing a mask is to protect others, not just yourself. Would this pass just be a card that says, yay, you've been vaccinated twice, or would this have information on it? Should it have the vaccine that you got uh, when you got it? Should should we be using this for other information, or is that when it crosses the line into privacy? Well, it'll probably need to have some information uh, around the vaccine that you got and when you got it, 
because uh, the vaccines like the Pfizer and Moderna, which have been widely distributed in, in Canada right now, um, officially, according to the manufacturers, after six months, you lose efficacy, which means you will probably need to have a booster at some point, uh, maybe if you want to travel in particular, uh, because a country might say to you, I'm sorry, your vaccine is no longer effective. You bring up a valid point, too, here, Marion, and, and how complicated and complex this can, this can become. How long is this card valid? I mean, is it like a driver's license or a license plate where once a year you're going to have to show proof and get a sticker and, and get your card or your, your pass updated? It might very well come to that because the experts do tell us that, uh, you know, we will not get rid of COVID. Um, we will be able to manage it. And if we reach herd immunity, which is a challenge, as we can see in the States, that is what they're concerned about, that they will not reach herd immunity. It means that disease is going to stick around for the long term. I mean, the coronavirus uh, exists in many forms, and we've never gotten rid of it. We had SARS, but SARS has not disappeared. It's just been controlled. Mm. We have MERS. MERS has only been controlled. H1N1. They've been controlled, right? So uh, they're still out there. People are still getting sick, just not at pandemic levels. And so just like yellow fever, if you want to travel to certain countries, you better have an up-to-date yellow fever shot and proof of it. And I think the vaccine is going to be a little bit like that, at least for for the next few years. Um, if there, if governments decide they're not going to do a vaccine passport, can then companies, uh, restaurants still ask for proof of some sort? Or does it have to be some sort of legally binding thing where now we're saying you, you know, if asked, you must provide proof? What about the legalities of this? Well, businesses have the right to, uh, determine the rules of entering that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's the the so so called no sh- no shirt no shoes no service <laughs> no shirt no shoes now no vaccine I guess we'll have to add to that. That's right. So uh, yes, the businesses have the right, but again, it makes it so difficult for businesses to have to do that. And and again, yeah. we've seen it time and time again with customers who are aggressive and abusive and you know because they don't want to follow the rules and it's some some poor person at the front entrance that you know making minimum wage that's now supposed to be that that security yeah. guard the gatekeeper yeah yeah what about uh employers saying to employees whether you're working in the hospitality industry if you're going to work here and over and above the guests the clients the customers that come in if you're going to work here you have to have a vaccine is that something that that uh, employers can do uh i think that would be treading a very fine line and yeah. undoubtedly it would get challenged in court um, how the courts decide, I I really couldn't tell you. I understand the U.S. is not doing this at this point. Uh, are you surprised? No, they are hesitant. And, and again, uh, it's because they've got 50% of their population that uh, is so opposed to anything coming out of uh, a demo, you know, uh, uh, sorry, a, a government that mm-hmm. is not Republican because it, that's how they right. split themselves in the states, right? 
And so that's why they're hesitant. But that does not mean we can't impose it. And we, we can easily impose it on Americans as well and say, you want to come into this country? Mm-hmm. You show us proof of vaccination. That's another point, too, Marion, that we haven't even touched on is that, uh, is the travel aspect of this. Um, once borders are open, can you see proof of vaccination being needed in order to get in or, or, or travel yes. to another country? Yes, I can see it from many countries. Um, that that they will impose it that you or you have to have a negative test and then quarantine until you get the second negative test uh, results back and and then you're free to go because a lot of the countries especially lesser developed ones simply haven't got the infrastructure to deal with uh, you know this this virus and and have been controlling it to the extent possible I mean it is a it, it is a disease that is spread through travel so. Travel has to be the one that is controlled and, and who you let into your country has to be safe. We, and I know this isn't your area of expertise, Marion, but uh, we're, we, I just heard a report minutes ago where someone's saying, you know, the whole thing on the travel ban, it's only 1% of cases come in from travel, uh, but that's the initial case. That's not the people they come into contact with, the, with the, in the community uh, once they touch down. Do you think we should be closing borders? Well, we we have been, in theory, in reality, the border is not very closed. Uh, It's better now, but we're still getting in, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people a month. So, uh, and and they're not all uh, essential workers. Um, And and many of them are returning Canadians who decided to go on holidays and come back, right? And as we have heard repeatedly, um, not all of the, the cities where they land uh, actually enforce the the Mm -hmm. quarantine and and follow up so it's a real haphazard effort and of course if they come in by road they don't uh, really need to quarantine at all until they get to their end destination and and we're sort of all over the map with with how we treat the borders Uh, other countries are far stricter and and that's how they've controlled it Boy, this is going to get pretty complicated as more and more of us get vaccinated and we start opening up because these questions are going to be at the forefront. And you have to ask, if not a vaccine passport, what would you use? The piece of paper that they give you at the pharmacist or whatever when you get your shot. And then you got to think about fraud. How easy is that copy? Exactly. Um, and, and I'm sure that they can work on, on an app, which, again, is not going to be uh, valid for everybody because not everybody has a, a cell phone or, you know, the ability to download an app. But it goes a long way. And so we have other things that are secure and where our information is protected. Uh, I think people are making this worse than, than it has to be. Um, But yes, we need to figure something out and figure it out fast. Europe is allowing Americans that are fully vaccinated in as of June, and they will insist on some sort of documentation. We just need to sort of get on board. And as you said, this is going to happen very quickly, and it's not going to be developed overnight, that's for sure. Uh, Dr. Marion Joppa has been with us, professor with the School of Hospitality, Food, and Tourism Management, University of Guelph, talking about vaccine passports and life on the other side of uh, this pandemic. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on and uh, talk about another contentious issue. We've talked about Line 5 uh, and and the, the pipeline going between uh, in and out of Canada through Michigan, I guess. And we'll get Dan to explain all of this. And the fact that it's going to be shut down, uh, supposed to be anyway, by May 12th, we certainly uh, are hearing the fallout of that. Uh, but the Globe and Mail pipeline, or the Globe and Mail headline is Line 5 Pipeline, a ticking time bomb and must be shut down by next week, says the Missioner Governor's Office. To talk more about this, Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's a former Liberal MP and he is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Good afternoon, Scott. Uh, explain to everybody what Line 5 is. Uh, pretty much represents half of all the gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, uh, and propane that you use here in Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes. Uh, so it's the oil pipeline that delivers crucial feedstock to all four Ontario refineries, as well as uh, half of the feedstock for the Montreal Petrocan Suncor refinery. So all in all, uh, a pretty significant piece of in- infrastructure. I refer to it as the aortic, uh, uh, you know, uh, vessel, blood vessel that supplies, you know, critical oil uh, to maintain the stability uh, and economic performance of the uh, uh, of the Eastern Canadian economy, and uh, it's likely shut down at some point uh, as of May 12th, so next Wednesday, six days from now. Uh, the operation of the uh, pipeline over the Strait of Mackinac, which Michigan is, uh, should no longer operate, is uh, in effect going to be uh, deemed by the government of uh, Michigan to be illegal. And as a result of that, uh, we are now into final hours as to when and if uh, the pipeline gets closed down. I don't suspect it's going to be next week, but uh, it's only really up to a matter of a court in the United States to make that decision and determination. So what happens on May 12th? So on May 12th, uh, effectively, that particular uh, pipeline is going to be seen as illegal uh, and uh, no longer has the license or the permit, uh, according to Michigan, to be able to uh, provide uh, the uh, ongoing use of that pipeline uh, as it goes under the Strait of Mackinac. Now, that Strait of Mackinac separates, the waterway separates uh, Lake Michigan by Lake Huron, and it uh, connects the, uh, the pipe from the northern side of Michigan, which comes from Alberta, by the way, all the way uh, down to Sarnia. And so it's an important transit way. And without it, of course, it means effectively, effectively 540,000 barrels of oil would no longer be able to make its way critically to the Eastern Canadian market uh, to keep our economy functioning. So who will eventually be responsible for shutting off the tap? Well, that will come down to a court. Um, we know that the governor there is, you know, has uh, doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down on her determination to see that pipeline closed. She is backed by a phalanx of supporters and uh, green supporters in particular who uh, fret the day that uh, there could be a pipeline leak. Uh, the pipeline itself is actually two two pipelines going under the under the uh, the strait is uh, the thickest uh, available pipeline uh, conduit anywhere in the world. And of course, Enbridge is proposing to. Uh, build a tunnel in order to allow those same two pipelines to go much deeper and well under the waterway so there's absolutely no risk of spilling. Nevertheless, that's not good enough for the uh, governor uh, who uh, says that it's a ticking time bomb and uh, they want it closed. And as of uh, May the 12th, its operation would be deemed as uh, outside of the laws of uh, the state of Michigan. Obviously, that's not the end be all end all. Uh, Michigan 
uh, is determined to see it shut down. But uh, law and, of course, treaty and other things may prevent that from happening in the short term. But as I said, it's really coming down to a decision by a court as to whether or not Michigan has the right to do that, which it believes it has, and Enbridge believes it doesn't. Enbridge is going to continue to operate, notwithstanding the ordinance by the uh, governor and uh, the state of Michigan. So any idea how long this will be in court? Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not a lawyer, and I certainly don't have uh, expertise in legal constitutional law, especially U.S. constitutional law. Uh, I, I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, I, you know, this could be a matter of days or it could be a matter of years. But the fact is that this particular pipeline is now on borrowed time. Uh, the Americans clearly, through their governor, don't want it. And uh, with it, uh, they're prepared to uh, abandon you know, the little amount of oil that goes to them, to Ohio and Pennsylvania, as well as, uh, you know, because it's a spur, it's an offshoot. There are other refineries that rely on that same pipeline. And the Americans have a lot more access to pipelines. They've been building out for many, many years, tons of them. And they haven't had the same kind of protests and, and uh, uh, negativity towards pipelines that we've witnessed and tolerated here in Canada. That aside, I think we're looking at, uh, you know, uh, dis, you know, some dis- disruption for Americans, not to the extent that it's going to happen here to Canadians. And that's unfortunate, but that's pretty much what we're dealing with right now in terms of uh, timing and, of course, imp- you know, Im- impacts. It will be far more uh, serious and far more harmful to Canada than it will to any, any state in the U.S., despite the fact that it will be disruptive for them, both in terms of supply and cost. So as far as Michigan's concerned, not a lot to lose here, and they'll just get their oil from another pipeline. Well, there's a political discourse in the United States, uh, which, of course, saw the Biden administration elected. The administration is not responding to calls from the Trudeau government. And why should they? I mean, they have nothing to you know, gain by wanting to shut this active pipeline down. And they may very well go to the liberals, uh, federal Trudeau liberals and most parliamentarians and say, listen, you guys are the ones saying there's a climate emergency. You're exactly. the folks that have been pushing, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, the need for massive carbon taxes. And you've already shut down a few of your own pipelines. You, you, you scuppered Northern Gateway. You, uh, uh, you know, you spiked uh, Energy East, which would have been an easy alternative to what we have here today because the pipeline is already in existence. So I think the Americans would simply be very simple to say, hey, Canadians, you can't be, you can't suck and blow. You can't be hypocritical here. Mm-hmm. Uh, either you are for pipelines or you're not. We happen to believe at this time this is a, a pipeline that uh, that is not in American interest. And uh, if you want and think pipelines are important, build one in your own country. You know, that, that you bring up a very valid point here, Dan. It, you know, we don't want to build our own, yet we get mad when someone like the United States cuts off our supply from their uh, pipeline. Uh, and again, it's like we're, Canada expects everybody else to do their dirty work for them. Yeah, and this has been a great pipeline to, you know, over 50, 68 years. I mean, it's been around since 1953. Not a single drop of oil has uh, has uh, has been you know has has leaked from that section of the pipeline, uh, but the Americans are well familiar with the previous pipeline built by Enbridge or owned by Enbridge, the uh, Kalamazoo Line Sink Six, which in 2010 leaked on a lot of oil before the company actually smartened up and realized, oh my goodness, uh, you know you're you're leaking into the Kalamazoo River, but that was then. This is now, and of course, uh, uh, you know that, that it's not the same pipeline. But you know, unfortunately for us, it's hard to fight history. This did happen, and. Uh, uh, Michiganians or some are using this as an example of why we should shut it down. But I got to tell you, there's just as much opposition in that state to doing this to Canada. Uh, and Americans know that they will feel some pain. 
Uh, but as I said earlier, not to the extent that Canadians will. And uh, at a time in which uh, we're emerging from a pandemic and we need to make sure our economy is strong, we can't afford to lose 30, 40, 50,000 jobs, uh, as well as, uh, you know, seeing half of our gas stations shut down, our Hamilton Airport here and our Toronto Pearson Airport all shut down because uh, there's no aviation fuel. And that is very much a risk should a court make that decision upholding the governor of uh, Michigan's uh, wish. Is all of Michigan supporting a, a, of this? Do, are no. the people in Michigan agreeing? No, no, it's it's divided. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, those who are in favor of it happen to wield power, not just in Michigan. Uh, they're, in, they're in power uh, as well in Washington. So anybody who thinks the Dems are a great friend of, uh, of Canada, I mean, I, I don't want to bring up the whole Trump Canada and hatred Canadians had for Trump, but you'd never see Trump doing something like this. And I'm sure he'd probably work uh, very hard to getting those pipelines back up and running. Uh, energy security is still a big deal for Americans, but they since forgot what that's like. Uh, thankfully, Texas, uh, California, the shortage is there, putting all our eggs in one basket on using reli- unreliable uh, you know, renewable energy, I think is a, a vivid reminder. And of course, uh, it doesn't take much for Michiganians to remind themselves that their own state had to go through a process of uh, force majeure and uh, go through rationing of propane supplies to keep their house warm just a couple of months ago. So this is going to be a real tough uh, row to hoe for the uh, uh, for the uh, Michigan governor. But uh, I think her statements yesterday that I finally seen in the press, she's opening up and saying, uh, this has got to go. This is uh, this, uh, this is a quote-unquote ticking time bomb. So to me, uh, it's, it'll be up to the courts to make that decision. But boy, oh boy, if it's one court decision, you can guarantee that that pipeline will be shut down in a minute. And uh, that's just not something that should be acceptable to Ontarians uh, and to Quebec. But it will remind all of us here that we can't take our energy sector for granted. And that we've got to stop dumping on oil and natural gas as our... Uh, uh, as if they are something very bad, when in fact they are the vanguard of why we have achieved such unparalleled prosperity and why we continue to be able to sell our clean energy to the rest of the world. What's Quebec's reaction to all of this? Because there's got to be some hypocrisy there as well. It's like they don't want to do a pipeline across the country, yet they're willing to get it from Michigan. So yeah. where do they stand on this? Well, I think you'll see that tonight. Uh, there is an emergency debate in the House of Commons about this, brought in by a Conservative member from Alberta. Uh, it's too bad it wasn't from an Ontario member of Parliament, but I guess uh, seeing is, uh, you know, uh, you have to see the pain, feel the pain before you actually act on the pain. But by then it'll be too little too late. I think the block is, uh, I've had a couple of questions from the block because I, uh, not the block, but rather uh, Quebec members. I have two that called me today uh, to speak to them in the next hour or so. On what the what the what the impact with the take up will be on Quebec, and of course uh, uh, that falls quickly on the heels of a uh, presentation I just made before the industry committee on why I think the Great Reset and all this talk about uh, uh, you know uh, build back better is uh, a little premature and uh, certainly missing the bigger point, which is that we've really got to reinforce and reinvigorate our uh, energy sector as opposed to. Uh, you know, simply uh, casting it aside, trivializing it, ignoring it. Uh, that If that pipeline were to shut down today, as an example, I guarantee you within six days, most gas stations would be out of fuel. And uh, if you think the lockdown uh, is something that would uh, be distressing, you ain't seen nothing yet. This thing shuts down and you can uh, pretty much kiss economic activity in Ontario goodbye for the foreseeable future. That being said, Enbridge says they're working on plans and contingency plans to reroute all this stuff. Hmm. Is the network big enough to reroute it? 
Yeah, I think everyone wants to put a, a, a decent spin on this and nothing to panic. I don't think they want to create that kind of circumstance, nor should they. But let's be realistic. I see Imperial Oil saying, well, we can get uh, vessels of oil coming in from the Seaway. That's great. But uh, you're in Hamilton. You know that Seaway is closed four to six months of the year. So, you know, that becomes less viable. Where are you going to get your oil to, to, uh, to drive your trucks, to drive your trains, to drive your economy, when in fact what you're seeing here is a pretty significant drop uh, in economic activity, uh, and you're not going to be able to get and fill those, those trucks or those trains uh, to deliver oil if, um, if this in fact happens. So for me, it's, uh, it's a pretty simple thing. Uh, uh, contingencies are meant just for that, contingencies. They have to have some kind of a plan, but frankly, we put all our eggs in one basket, and that's going to be very, very difficult. We, we remember when there was rail disruptions last year, and Quebec was very vocal uh, that they weren't getting their propane. They were screaming that they, you know, putting pressure on the government to resolve this so they could get propane. Are, are we going to see them scream when this closes down? Uh, well, you're going to see it scream, and you're going to see a lot more people uh, make the argument that uh, maybe it's time to stop dumping on hydrocarbons and fossil fuels and realize that if you want the green you know, mean green economy, uh, you're going to get it much quicker than you than 5, 10, 15, 20 years. You want net zero by 2030? How about net zero at the end of 2021? <laughs> uh, again, getting back to uh, Ottawa's, or sorry, uh, Quebec's, um, they refuse to, to have any sort of uh, east-west pipeline going through uh, their jurisdiction. Uh, obviously, this situation with with uh, with Michigan is going to greatly uh, affect Quebec. Does this put pressure on them to change their position? On no, uh, no, no, it won't. But I mean, look, Quebec is uh, well known uh, for its uh, you know having the greatest per capita number of F one fifty sold yeah. versus any other province, including Alberta. Look, all of these things are, we can talk a great deal, and this is what I said to the industry committee this morning, we can talk a great deal about the economy that we want, and we can uh, hope that these things kind of happen, but, you know, reality brings us back uh, to recognizing uh, the benefits, the advantages, not just to, you know, to our, our, our standard of living, but to our Canadian economy of, of being able to uh, manage our, our fossil fuels, our hydrocarbons responsibly. I mean, we've, despite... Scott, we've seen what a three, uh, a threefold increase in our electricity bills. Has it done anything to stop and to slow down so-called carbon emissions? No. Whether they're good or bad, I'll leave that for another debate. Uh, fact is that you've punished the economy, you've punished consumers, and we have nothing to show for it. So now you're saying, well, you can achieve it, like the prime minister is saying. Oh, let's do forty-five percent reduction in emissions below uh, two thousand and five levels. Hey. <laughs> You've gone through all this hell financially over the past uh, 7 to 14 years, and there's zip to show for it. So how are you going to achieve a 45-degree or 45-time greater uh, savings? And the reality, I think, is wake up. For God's sakes, wake up, Canadians. Uh, COVID-19 hopefully will do that. Uh, the Prime Minister often says Canada punches above its weight. There's been times in the past where Canada has been, been punching far above uh, where it is now. This, this pandemic has made us realize how dependent uh, we have become on other countries and how we are not self-sufficient anymore. Is that attitude going to change with the Canadian public? Well, it should. But, I mean, look, we're leaders in nuclear technology, nuclear uh, service. We're leaders in, you know, converting from coal to natural gas. We're leaders in hydroelectric uh, energy. You know, I spoke to uh, 
a very good member of parliament from Niagara, Baldessari, uh, had some great questions this morning on committee about how we, you know, take into consideration the importance of our energy mix and uh, use that and leverage that to our advantage. That gives us the Canada advantage. But you can't do it if you're out blocking pipelines, especially natural gas pipelines, and you're saying, well, you know, Canadian technology just shouldn't be allowed to do that. Let's just go tax the snot out of people. Let's talk about technology getting us to where we want to be as opposed to finding cute, trendy ways to tax people at a time when, according to MNP, uh, debt uh, uh, solution folks uh, were looking at 53% of Canadians only 200 bucks away from going bankrupt at the end of the month. Yeah, we seem to talk a lot about what we can't do as opposed to what we can do and what we used to do and what we could do. Uh, and again, it's great to say build back better, but nobody seems to have any idea what that even looks like, uh, which well, is... Well, the ones confu- that do, Scott, are the ones making and relying on government subsidies. And you've got yeah. companies bet, you know, throwing over themselves and lining up as long as they can get access to our big fat tax system, which of course is collapsing because uh, of the amount of debt that we have. You really don't take take away the subsidies, direct and indirect, to those organizations that receive their money through so-called charitable foundations, and there are thousands of them in Canada. Same group of people, same cast of characters who either shame companies into paying them or get direct funding from the federal and provincial governments. That's take that money away, and this issue will start to become more balanced in terms of reality of what balancing with what we can do from a from a. From a, uh, from a physics point of view and from a consumer point of view and from a manufacturing point of view and from a farming point of view, as opposed to just always one side saying, uh, getting the uh, getting all the attention and the one greasy wheel, one one uh, wheel always getting uh, you know access to the grease. We lost we've lost the center, Dan. We live in a world of extremes. Uh, Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great to be here. Thanks again, Scott. Bye bye. It's been announced today Pfizer and BioNTech will donate vaccines for Olympic athletes. And the doses are set to begin uh, this month. The games uh, start in summer, July 23rd. Uh, and this is for uh, the Tokyo Games. Vaccine developers Pfizer and BioNTech going to donate doses to uh, vaccine athletes and officials preparing for the Tokyo Olympics, uh, it said today. Those uh, deliveries set to begin and have uh, uh, this week and set to have uh, the second shot before arriving in Tokyo for the Games, which open up uh, July 23rd. Uh, the second major vaccine deal for the uh, IOC, uh, an agreement was announced in March between the IOC and Olympic officials in China to buy and distribute Chinese vaccines ahead of the Tokyo Games and next year's uh, Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, obviously a very contentious issue. We've talked about this, whether the athlete should even be going to a place like China, considering what has happened, that in regard to uh, the Beijing Olympics, and in regard to Tokyo, should you be doing this in the middle of a global pandemic? Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. You can also hear him every weeknight right here on CHML. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, and I'm digging Will's music coming in there. I love the 80s vibe. That's great. Uh, I don't mind the 80s vibe either, but Depeche Mode? Yeah, well, you know. It's my wife's favorite band. Oh, well, see, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Doing it for the wife. All right. Thank you, Scott. I'll pass that along to her. Um, you know, we've talked about whether we even should be going to Beijing. Uh, that's a, a separate issue. Uh, now we're talking about Tokyo and how safe can this be? And now Pfizer and BioNTech stepping up, donating vaccines. Should 
shouldn't these vaccines be going to an India or someplace like that? What, what, what about the optics here, Scott? Okay, you know, it's a great question, and, I, and you knew, and the fact that you identified this as a talking point topic is great radio work, because, you know, you knew this is going to make people lose their minds. And there is part of it that, to me, is exactly as you just said. I mean, surely India could use these kind of things. The flip side of this is, that word that you just pointed out and you just stressed, donated. These are private companies, and if they choose to donate their product to somewhere of their choosing, I don't know that we should tell them you can't do that. If they mm-hmm. were, if they were, not if they were selling them to Tokyo at a inflated cost or doing something else. If this, I mean, if, if Tim Hortons decides that you know what we. The, the guys who are out there and the women who are out there doing garbage collecting and COVID is really tough. So we're going to give free coffees to them and other people don't get free coffees. Do we have a problem with that? No, because it's Tim Hortons and they're a private company and they can do with their product what they want. However, Pfizer is coffee are different things, but it, you know, it, I'm having a hard time getting too bent out of shape because it's a private company donating. All right, let's uh, Pfizer and uh, Moderna very open about this since the very beginning. They will be making a profit off of these medications. AstraZeneca has said uh, we're covering costs. That's it. You look at the uh, readouts, uh, Pfizer and uh, making billions of dollars, whereas uh, AstraZeneca is just basically covering the costs. The U.S. Uh, government has now said they're all for release, uh, relaxing patents to allow more of this stuff to be uh, to be developed. Developed, uh, produced in other countries who need it. They did this during the uh, AIDS ap- uh, epidemic. Yep, yep. So uh, obviously Pfizer is fighting desperately against this because they're losing money here. So how does it look if they're fighting from uh, poor countries to, uh, you know, have the opportunity to produce this, yet they're donating it to athletes? Did I not read, by the way, was Bill Gates not involved in this discussion? He was arguing against releasing those patents as well, which is not a highly sympathetic position for a guy who's got like $150 billion. And to be fair, the whole idea against releasing the patents is if, if that's the game we're going to now play, then what incentive is there for any of these companies to even develop these? But there's got to be a happy medium somewhere, and we use the AIDS epidemic as an example, and I would say this is a global pandemic, so it certainly is out of the ordinary. Go ahead, I forgot. No, I no, and, and, and your point is, is great again. You're, you're on today, Scott. I mean, you've got good points. I mean, the, 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 the idea of releasing the patents we're in a global pandemic right now, so yes, you can make that argument, but I think a lot of people justifiably get a little nervous when we open the door to things and we start that slippery slope, and so governments now nudge into areas where they shouldn't be nudging into, and then what's the next patent that the government says, well, we need this one as well, we can't protect this. And so I understand why people are nervous about this. Leave aside the billions of dollars that Pfizer might be making. I understand exactly why there are concerns about that. So the issue is then, okay, so now Pfizer is making billions of dollars off this. Should they then take those profits or some of those profits and rather than donating to an Olympic Games and to Olympic athletes, should they send it to places that are in crippling crisis mode right now like India? That Mm -hmm. is a slightly different question from what we started that one, uh, there's a very fair point to be made there. There's a very fair point to be made there. That's up to Pfizer and their people to decide that. 
as a private company, I don't want to tell people where they must donate. I, I don't. I don't think that's our place or the government's place to tell a private corporation where yeah, I agree. they already take their taxes. I don't think we should tell them where you have to give away stuff. But, but you know, as a PR thing, I think there's an awful lot of room for them to gain some yeah. traction and look like compassionate corporate entities if they say. You know, we're making, I don't know how many billions they said they're going to make, but we're going to take some of those and give 100 billion doses right now to India just to get started. I, you know, there is there is absolutely an opportunity for them to look pretty darn good if they do that. Uh, are you surprised that Canada is not jumping on board with Joe Biden and the rest of uh, America on this? Uh, you know, considering we're more philanthropic than they are, um, you know, Canada, no secret, is not a friend of Big Pharma. I mean, that's why we are where we are with a production deal. Um, you know, we're more interested in generic drugs and, and, and challenging Big Pharma, which is, again, one of the reasons we're in the predicament that we are, we're in. We're taking stuff from Kovacs, yet we're not, we're not in favor of releasing these patents. And the reason that we are is because it upsets Pfizer who now are our lifeline. So it seems very odd that, you know, this relationship that wasn't that good from the start, uh, we don't want to be slaves to big pharma. In the end, that's exactly what we are. Uh, we're not, we're not agreeing with America because we're not in the position of America that's a wash in vaccine and we're still dependent on, on Pfizer. I think it's context, isn't it, Scott? Can can the, can the liberal government right now in Ottawa dare to create enemies in the vaccine world when yeah. it's, uh, you know, we were having an election coming up at some point and, you know, the, things look pretty rosy for the Trudeau government right now, but if the delays in vaccines continue, if people, if the rest of the world is back to normal and we're still not at some point, it's going to catch up with them. And I don't think they can take the risk. I think politically they're looking, saying, we can't risk ticking off anybody that we may have to go and beat on the door to say we need help and we need your vaccines. I, I, this may be an entirely different conversation if it was not in the hot zone or the petri dish right now. Of what's going on? I mean, it, your ethics and your morals and your beliefs and your philosophies. It clearly, in some cases, they're going to be put aside for the current realities. And so the, your point is well taken. This may be a very different discussion if there were not political realities at play that say we just cannot run the risk that we make anybody too angry and don't want to do business with us. All right, we got two Olympics here coming up that are in question. Obviously, the Tokyo Olympics this summer, which many are saying, uh, obviously due to the pandemic, should <laughs> should be postponed, should be whatever. And then Beijing, simply because it's in China, and we know how the world feels about China today. Uh, does this whole idea of staging and holding the Olympics, whether it's in summer or next winter, does this get more palatable over time, or is this just becoming more and more of a train wreck as they approach? I, a good question. Again, uh, I think that this would be a much easier discussion if the Olympics this summer were in Beijing and the Olympics next year in 2022 were in Tokyo. Mm. Good point. Because right now you have all these political implications, the two Michaels and the Uyghurs and, and Taiwan and Hong Kong and all these things going on. You could very easily decide you're not going to Beijing right now and couch it in COVID terms, but really it's a political decision. And then a year from now, we say, oh, but you know what? By next winter, uh, Tokyo, things will be better. We've got the vaccines. Everyone's going to be happy. Away we go. 
it's much more complicated by the fact that people seemingly want to support the Tokyo Olympics and are enthusiastic about the Tokyo Olympics, although very concerned about the concept, but are really plugging their nose a little bit and wincing as they think about going to Beijing because, you know, we don't want to harm our athletes who have spent five years training, but what message are we sending if we just send people along and say, hey, have a great old party in Beijing while all the stuff is going on that we just can't abide under our, you know, our, our ethics and our morals. So, as I say, it's, it's, you've got two games in a row here that line up in a really difficult pattern that make it really, really hard to know what the proper answers are. I mean, the easy answer, Scott, is say no to both. That would be, but when has there ever been an easy answer, especially when it comes to something like this? There are political ramifications. There are social ramifications. There are uh, economic ramifications. There are all kinds of things when you have to make a decision to say, we're not going to the Olympics. And I mean, on top of everything else that's going on in your country right now with your decisions and your government and everything else, on top of everything else, do you want to throw this flaming pile of dog poop on top of that mm. and say, okay, now here's an extra thing to deal with? All right, let's uh, let's focus on Tokyo because because Beijing Beijing is obviously a, a little bit of a different discussion. But are we are we looking at this you and I right now too much from a Canadian perspective? This isn't happening until July, and by July the United States are having barbecues with their families and no masks, says Joe Biden. And the UK, I mean, my goodness, they're in pubs. They're everybody's opening up. So it, it, are we looking at this too much from a Canadian perspective and not thinking? Well, by the time July rolls around, uh, the end of July. Um, it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be the roaring twenties for other countries, just not Canada. So, are we looking at it from our view as opposed to the world view? And and by that time, the U.S. is open. We're done. We're vaccinated. Get the damn Olympics going. Yeah, partially. I think you're partially right. Uh, but we're, it's not just Canada. There's a lot of countries that are struggling right now with yeah. this. And again, we mentioned India. So it brings us right back full circle to where this started with Pfizer and what was the other company now that's donating its um its vaccines. Um, Moderna. uh, Is it Moderna that's doing it? Okay. Um, The issue here is, can you get the athletes into Tokyo already clean? And I say that like vaccine virus-wise. Can you bring them in so you're not going to have an outbreak? Can you run a safe Olympics? Uh, They've already said there's not going to be foreign tourist fans who are going to be there. So all you have to do to make sure these Olympics can go off, I think, is make sure the athletes are vaccinated and clean and make sure the support staff, the officials, whatever else, are vaccinated and clean, no matter where they are in the world, whether it's India, whether it's Canada, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's who knows where, anywhere. And that's a much, much, much smaller group that you have to look after than saying, we don't know where the tourists are coming from. We then have to have the entire world cleaned up for this. You don't need that anymore. And so... You know, yeah, we're looking at it from a Canadian perspective because we're living this reality, but there are places worse than us. There are places better than us. For the Olympics, doesn't matter. As long as your athletes yeah. and officials and people, support staff are clean, theoretically, it could go ahead. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him tonight on CHML and sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.